Glory days, well, they'll pass you by. Glory days, glory days, glory days. You've now been successfully earwormed, and that song will be in your head for the rest of the day. Bruce Springsteen's song provides an opportunity for us to reflect on the meaning of life. He points out the temporary glory that athleticism and natural beauty attain while expressing the hope to grow up into something different, someone who isn't merely focused on the past. He doesn't want to become an Uncle Rico of sorts. And for the many who are confused by that comment, it just goes to show how fleeting the viral moments of our day truly are. Almost as fleeting as the mullet. But here we are. They're back again, soon to be immortalized by school yearbooks across the country. We've all had our glory days. Days in our lives where we look back on fondly. For whatever reason, they seem to be better. They were easier. They were more simple. They were more carefree. There were less aches and pains, less doctor's appointments, less heartaches, less homework, and less responsibility. Everything just seemed to be better back in the day. As we look back on the past, there's a tendency to elevate those days above the days that we're living in now. I'm no song interpreter, but I think that's the heart behind the whole premise of Springsteen's song. As much as we may not want to acknowledge it, it's easy to find ourselves doing that same thing with the events in Scripture. We imagine life being a little bit easier following the Lord. If only we were there. If only we had the opportunity to walk on top of water with Peter, to taste the manna in the wilderness, to see the land filled with frogs, to smell the burning incense in the temple, and to hear the voice of Jesus in our own ears. Those were the glory days especially when we read passages like the one today and we wonder what it would have been like, which is totally normal and acceptable. Imagine what it would have been like to see the glory of God, experiencing God's glory. Experiencing God's glory ought to result in praise and worship, but so often for a variety of reasons, we neglect to see God's glory among us today. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, I'm reading in Jesus' name. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Father God, these are your words and your word is truth. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth, Lord, that you would give us understanding. Help us to see your glory today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Feelings can lead you astray. So often we rely on our feelings to assure us of things. For example, if you're about to leave for a trip and you have a feeling that you're forgetting something, you don't know what it is, you've looked at your list and you have everything that is listed on the list, yet there's still this nagging feeling that you're forgetting something. And so even though you're ready to go out the door, you're dragging your heels, not quite ready to go until you remember or until this feeling goes away. 
Or we can, make over, we can spiritualize this example and we can attach it to prayer. Have you ever finished a prayer and wondered, did God really hear what I just said? Will God answer the prayer that I just asked for, that I just mentioned? If you've ever doubted that God hears your prayers or that he'll answer your prayer, on what do you base that idea on? What do you base your doubts on? Maybe you've asked God to forgive you for something. Or maybe you've even asked Christ to come into your life, but you don't really feel anything different. And so you wonder, am I really forgiven? I don't feel any different than I did five minutes ago. Or am I really saved? I don't feel anything different than what I did before I prayed that prayer. We begin to doubt. Can I be saved? How can I know for sure? If you wanted to grossly misapply the text for today, you could ask yourself, well, did the Lord send down fire from heaven and consume the burnt offering that you gave him? This text isn't telling us how to know if God hears our prayers. It's not the purpose of this text. But it shows us the response to the glory of God when people come to view, view and see the glory of God. King Solomon had just finished praying the prayer of dedication in the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 6 records the content of that prayer, and I'd encourage you to read that prayer sometime today. And the text for this morning covers the Lord's response to his prayer. Solomon doesn't have to wonder if the Lord heard his prayer or if he accepted his prayer or if the temple is actually going to be an okay place to worship. He's given a very visible sign. The Lord responds with fire from heaven, consuming the burnt offering and the sacrifices. The Lord had indeed heard his prayer and had accepted the sacrifice, and he left no doubts for the people. Wouldn't it be great if we had something just as magnificent to reassure us that our prayers are heard, that our prayers are accepted, that our prayers will be answered? Wouldn't it be great if the whole sanctuary were filled with the clouds some Sunday morning worship service so that we could without a doubt say definitively that the Lord was here this morning? We experienced his glory. We saw the cloud. We felt the cloud. And who knows, maybe even there was a certain scent along with that, ta- that cloud. Would we respond any differently about attending worship if that happened regularly? Would we be more vocal about inviting others to come and experience worship with us, experience a tremendous presence of God? It'd sure be nice if it wasn't just a one-and-done occurrence in the Old Testament, Right? Imagine if it happened weekly. Have thoughts like these ever crossed your minds? And if so, then we're trading the magnificent truths of God's word for some fleeting experience, event, or feeling. Because what does the rest of Scripture say? What does the rest of Scripture explain for us how we are to seek the Lord and where we are to see God's glory? About a thousand years after this event, the narrative continues on for us. As the Holy, and Spirit, the Holy Spirit inspired one of Jesus' disciples to pick up a quill and to start recording some thoughts, to start writing God's word for us. As the Spirit guides John's thoughts, John reflects back on the life of Jesus and what it means for the world. And he begins writing his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, 
Nothing came into being that has come into being. And then he continues on. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Did you catch the comment that John makes here about the glory of God? Where is it that we are to look and seek and find the glory of God? Is it in some magical mist that we experience? Or is it in the person of his one and only Son, Jesus Christ? God's glory isn't to be found chasing this magical mist or this fading feeling or emotional ecstasy. But it's been revealed to us fully in the person of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. We remember the stories of Elijah begging to see God's glory, only to be told, hey, Elijah, if you see me in my full glory, you couldn't survive. So I'll let you see my backside as I pass by. Here, hide in these rocks. We think of Moses going further back yet. As he speaks with the Lord and receives the commandments from the Lord and comes down from Mount Sinai, and the people say, Moses, cover your face. We can't bear to see the glory of God reflecting off of your face. Not even in that mediated presence of God's glory could God's people handle it. And yet, in Christ Jesus, God's glory is put on full display for all the world to see. God's glory takes on flesh and dwells among us. And the crazy thing is, he wasn't anything too special crazy thing is, is how many people missed it. There wasn't anything exciting about his appearance that men should put him up on a pedestal. There was no random stranger that would, walking past Jesus, would say, oh, he looks like a god. There wasn't anything that made him stick out. When he was a baby, he was just like every other baby. Yet there, crawling around in the dirt on his hands and knees, was the fullness of God's grace and truth the creator of heaven and earth, the word of God made flesh, disguised in the everyday, ordinary, mundane monotony of everyday life. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. It didn't seem like anything so spectacular. And for those first 30 years, Christ was hidden in plain sight, so to speak. It wasn't until Jesus began his public ministry that people started to connect the dots. And even then, when they began to fill in this picture, they were filling in a picture that Jesus never came to fulfill. They had their own ideas of what Jesus, being the Messiah, would bring in. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross, those pictures were done away with. And there were just a few who stood by him as he breathed his last. And even then, it was probably just as much standing by a friend or a son than standing by the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus died, and the crowd dispersed. The fullness of God's glory was sealed shut in a tomb, concealed from everyone. The closest to Jesus, those closest to Jesus hid for fear of their own lives. But then, on the third day, on the third day, Christ again rose from the dead, and God's grace and truth could now no longer be contained. It's again put on display for all to see as the radiance of God's glory penetrates the world once more. Christ had risen. 
And as he rises again from the dead, he conquers the devil's most powerful vices of sin and death, while also defeating the devil himself. The message of Jesus' resurrection began to spread. And as that message spread, groups of souls gathered together to study the scriptures, to hear God's word, and to see how this had always been the plan from the beginning of Genesis through the time of Christ and beyond. God is calling them together here into local congregations, knitting them together into one body, despite all of their disagreements, despite all of their arguments, Despite the conflicting personalities and the flaws that existed there in the first century, Scripture speaks of the congregation as the body of Christ. And not only as the body of Christ, but as the pure and spotless bride of Christ. Despite the bland ordinariness of the local congregation, Christ is dwelling among us and through us here today. Can you see it? Or are we still longing for something we can touch and see, for some magical mist that we can say, there is God's glory. God's glory and God's grace is to be found here. As we gather together to hear the word of God, as it is read, as it is heard, as it is taught, and as it is studied, Christ comes to us. Scripture speaks of the word of God as being living and active, but to many, it's not a whole lot different than any other book gaining dust on the shelves. Maybe, we say, maybe if the words literally jumped off the page and smacked us in the face, we'd say, yeah, it is living and active. It seems so mind-numbingly ordinary and simple that it's hard for us to believe that it's anything different than just an ordinary book. Yet it's through these very words that Christ comes to us. In his word, Jesus promises to come to us through other means as well things that don't seem to be so extraordinary or so fancy. They just seem to be ordinary and common. Through baptism, it's almost a rite that every child seems to go through, and also through communion. Baptism is a special time. It happens once, and God places his name on us there through his word, through his promise, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Communion, on the other hand, happens regularly, more regularly about once a month in our worship service here. In these times, do we see God's glory? Or are these things just another ordinary event, just another part of life in the congregation? But here in these, hidden here in plain sight, in the ordinariness of God's word and God's sacrament and these elements, God's glory is put on display for us to see as God is there attaching his name to people, creating faith and forgiving sins. Are you looking for God's glory today? Look no further than Jesus Christ. And Christ comes to us through his word and through his sacrament. No, it may not be the spectacular fire from heaven consuming the burnt offerings in our presence, which we so often wish we could experience and see Yet these are the means through which Christ has promised to come to us in his word, and so he does. Is it really any less glorious than what the Lord did in the Old Testament? When we think of what is actually taking place here, God's glory is present among us in the local congregation. But that's not how we often talk about the congregation, is it? 
So often what we see and what we talk about are the problems and the frustrations that exist here. The problems and frustrations that we have with one another. And when I say one another, I don't mean the person with whom you actually have a problem with, right? We wouldn't talk to them. No, we would talk to someone else, a mediator who takes our side and believes the same thing that we say. And that problem continues to exist, continues to go on unaddressed. That's how we usually view congregations, isn't it? But is that how we should talk about the local congregation? Are we so caught up with ourselves that we fail to see that Christ is here in our midst? That Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins? That Christ has forgiven the one with whom we have a disagreement as well of all of their sins? God's glory is to be seen here in the community of God's people, living and forgiving one another, pointing each other to Jesus Christ. What is the proper response to the glory of God and to seeing it? Look at how the Israelites responded to God's glory in verse 3 of our text. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down, the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. It's not very often that we get to point to the Israelites as setting a good example for us in the Old Testament. But here is one of those times, and so we will do it. When they see fire coming down from heaven, what is it that they do? They hit the deck. They hit the deck not because they're afraid of the flying chunks that an ember might touch them and burn them, but they're suddenly made aware of their own unworthiness. They're suddenly made aware again of God's power, of God's glory and God's might, as well as their own sinfulness. And we find them worshiping the Lord on their knees and on their faces, giving praise to God. Why? Verse 3 explains it. What are they praising God for? Truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. They saw in God's glory and in his answer to Solomon's prayer that God had accepted the sacrifice that was presented to him. They saw in a very real way that the Lord had indeed dealt with their sins. And their offering, the offering wasn't the only thing that should have been consumed that day. They didn't deserve to live another day to take another breath. They too should have been consumed by the wrath of God. Yet God in his grace accepted the offering in their stead on their behalf. And it's here again that we're pointed to Jesus. Because Jesus is the sacrifice for sin in our stead. It's how we can know without a doubt that God is good and that his loving kindness is everlasting and his loving kindness is on display for you. If God didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, that includes each one of us, then how will he also not with Christ freely give us all things? Displayed for all the world to see as the black and white words of the text say and declare for us. And as history also attests to. Suspended in the air, hanging there on the cross, God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it doesn't get much more glorious this side of eternity seeing that there on the cross in our stead is Christ paying the penalty for all of our sins 
And coming together here in the presence of God as we receive his word, as we hear his word. And the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and in our lives, causing us to believe in him. And to trust that Jesus wasn't just suspended in the air for our neighbor down the road, but suspended in the air for me and also our neighbor down the road. Suspended in the air for the one I don't get along with. Suspended in the air for the politicians we don't agree with. Suspended in the air for the people who grievously sin against us. Paying for their sins too. Through his word, Christ calls us together into a community of saints where we receive the full forgiveness of all of our sins. And the only proper response that is left for us is to bow down in worship to the Lord, confessing our sins to him and receiving Christ's forgiveness again as he comes to give forgiveness to us and praising God for experiencing his glory here today. No, it may not come to us in the form of a cloud or in the form of fire raining down from heaven and consuming a burnt offering, but it is on display for us in Christ on the cross. And the words of the text, the words of God's word, proclaim that message for us today. It may not look as exciting as we want, but it's very real and it's very true that Christ has come to forgive you. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word and for its truth. God, we thank you that your glory is on display here among us, even within our own congregation as we hear your word. Lord, as we receive your word and the forgiveness of sins, as we receive again the message of your word about who Christ is and what he has done for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe that message, that you would help us, Father, to know that you have come for those that we don't get along with, you have come to forgive them. Father, to know that your glory is still to be experienced and seen here in the local congregation. Open our eyes, Lord, to see that you are at work here in our midst, here in our own lives as well. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.